I'm Ian Dark, and you're listening to Men in Blazers, sub-optimal radio on the Grantland Network. Oh, it's incredible! You could not write a script like this! From the Embassy Row Studios, in the crap part of Soho, it's the Men in Blazers podcast. Oh, well, like the true detective, but English, David. Really? You be Marty. Yeah. I'll be Rust. Mm-hmm. It's going to solve some crime. I haven't watched it yet, Rog. You haven't? Now I've got it all loaded up, ready to go. Got a whole series recorded. Oh, I haven't watched it yet. Makes me love Louisiana. Yeah, I've got that racked up. I've got the Americans racked up. I want to go and watch that. Oh, I love Louisiana. Mostly I've been watching Super Y. George loves the Super Ys. Superheroes who spell words and read them oh. and solve fairy tale issues. They sound like the US men's national thing. <laughs> they are very similar. They are similar. More of whom we'll be talking later on in the pod. But first, David, this isn't just any show. This is our St. Patrick's Day special, Rog. Oh, love me, Ireland. Well, it's not really... It's not St. Patrick's Day today. It was St. Patrick's Day on Monday. Today is Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I'm still a little hungover from St. Patrick's Day. One of my favourite holidays. Yep. We don't take off many days at Embassy Row. Um, we don't observe many national holidays, but we do observe St. Patrick's Day. All the Day. Druid ones you yeah. take off. Yeah, we take them. We yeah. take them. I've got to tell you, I love Ireland. It's you, like the you Louisiana the of... out of Ireland, St. Patrick. Well Europe. done. Oh, it's amazing. I love the Chieftains. I love WB Yates. I love Giants Causeway. But you've given me, David, because we discussed this on our serious show, you have given me... Royal County Down, Port Rush. Well, I've got a list of my top five yeah. Irish people. Okay. In fact, I realise when I put it together, I love every Irish person. Yeah. Apart from Enya. I don't have a problem with Enya. Didn't love her music. Lovely woman. Yeah. Lovely lady. But you like her as a human being. I think being. you're right. I've never really met an Irish person I didn't love. Here's my top five. Yeah. I've had to throw James Joyce, William Butler Yeates and George Bernard Shaw into one. Okay. Which will probably be quite offensive because they all listen to the pod. Okay, got it. But This you... is like our World Cup preview that we're planning for Grantland. Oh, we've only got ten episodes and so we've got to... Shalombia. We're, we're, we're combining countries to go and uh, to go and make it work. Van Morrison. Yeah. Number two. I'd like to be like him. I'd like to age gracelessly like him. Yeah. That's my aim. Mm-hmm. The Undertones, the band. Yeah. You don't know who they are, then you're very young. Oh, and you should listen to Teenage Kicks. John Tyndall, also amazing, the 19th century physicist who discovered that the sky was blue. I thought you were going to say closer to the ground oh, up north. Thank you, John. Thank okay. And then my favourite, probably, my number one Irish person. Everyone's, yeah. I think. St. Bridget, the early Christian nun, born into slavery as a druid in 451. Uh-huh. She gave her virginity to God, and then she healed the sick and fed the poor. Patron saint of babies. God, babies, she's yours. Blacksmith, oh, like boom men, children whose parents are not married. Children with abusive fathers, dairy workers, fugitives, printing presses, scholars, and travellers. That is a life, David. That is the kind of life I wish I had led. Where is Brian O'Driscoll on your list? Oh, he's number six. He's <laughs> <laughs> number six. Tell me about the great... Oh, the, the, the cause. I love the cause. Oh, I love some, some great... I like them for their music. For <laughs> <laughs> you... Gave me a reason. The reason why we're talking about Ireland yeah. is I thought I loved it about as much as I could. Yeah. But then on Monday, on Sirius, you told me a story that made me love it all the more. What? About St. Patrick's Day? About your St. Patrick's Day dance? Oh, I do a St. Patrick. You don't have a St. Patrick's Day dance? Everybody has a St. Patrick's Day dance, right? Everybody whose name is Michael Davis, who's 116th. Okay. What really... Well, I'm, I'm quarter Scottish. And so that's how, maybe a little bit more than quarter Scottish. So I've got some Gaelic blood. Yeah. And so I see it as my duty to wear green on St. Patrick's Day and entertain my children 
by doing my St. Paddy's Day dance. Was this one that's been handed down over generations? Yeah, or one yeah my mum did it. My mum did it, and I learned it from my mum. Go on, I'm going to teach it to you. Yeah, please. Okay, I'm going to have to take the headphones off. Okay, okay. and I'm going to commentate on it so the people who are not treated today... Okay. Say, do you hear me there? pulling up his pants now. I am wearing black watch tartan. He's wearing black watch tartan, the beautiful top, rag and bone. Oh my God. I have never seen you more... Morph instantly because you've got stealth height, Michael Davis. I do. You look like a leprechaun when That's you did that. That was frantic. That. that was absolutely frantic. It was like a little. It was like a mix of um, Liam Neeson and Fred Astaire. It was slightly frenetic but deeply, deeply menacing Can at I the say same time. Something was a little weird there. Go on. It's, as I was doing that, usually you look at me like you're interested, like you love me a bit, yeah, like you really like me. Then yep. you looked at me, sort of with somewhere between horror and fear <laughs> and pathos. <laughs> I felt deeply sad, which I think is going Why? to be I think overcome by melancholy, which is, thank God, the right mood to Was do it this the Cossack in. thing? And I'm going to say, Manchester United fans, yep. we're about to talk about your team. Maybe fast forward 12 minutes into the pod and spare yourself from all that is to come. Oh, definitely. Well, you can fast forward through the pod. If you're listening on YouTube, we actually want to know what you think about the YouTube thing. Grantland have put all the pods up on YouTube. And uh, our one is up there. And what's good about it, Rogers, is you can actually fast forward. If you're not interested in my St. Patrick's Day dance, you could have fast forwarded through that. And you could have gone, you could have gone straight to our uh, discussion of Man United Liverpool. YouTube.com backslash yeah. Grantland Podcasts yeah. is the URL. It's the place to go for the Men in Blazers on YouTube. I do think, by the way, Roger, I did decide when I looked at the YouTube stuff, I'm installing cameras in this room. Yeah. This is going to be the end of just our audio-only podcast. Oh. We're going to install, Alex doesn't even know this yet, I've greenlit the money, and we're going to put cameras, remote cameras in this room. We're going to turn this office into a podcast studio. It's going to be a bit Video like House of studio. Cards when he becomes vice president and they put cameras all over his house. That means I'm going to have to do my first ever podcast with pants on. Yeah, I'm going to rewrite the rules of what a podcast will look like with the way we're going to set this up. It's going to look fantastic, Rog. My gift to you. Oh, to the football, Davo. Okay, pack show, Rog. We're going to discuss the latest So Crazy Even Arlo Light would admit they are almost unbelievable narrative flip-flops in the Premier League. We're going to covet your Ravens, including one on a week to remember for Jurgen Klinsmann and the U.S. men's national team, Julian Greenwood. And welcome, New York Red Bulls maestro, former Nigel player, Tim Cahill. Ah, love him. Onto the pod for Men in Blazers. Slightly late, an MLS kickoff. <laughs> uh, we're between 30, 38 and 27, 38 of the way through this season, Roger. I don't like it when everyone is a different fraction, some of them reducible, some of them not reducible uh, through the season, Rog. Have to say, Premier League has reverted to early season form. Everything we thought we knew was wrong is still wrong, will be wrong, except for Liverpool, Rod. Yeah, but it's been. It was a weekend of Vendorpunks, Dave. It was wheels within wheels for me, Vendorpunks within Vendorpunks. I've realised this weekend, I realised something. Do you want to know what? God, can a Vendorpunks have a Vendorpunks within it, or is a Vendorpunks followed immediately by another Vendorpunks? German, so it's German like Escher, GFOP. You're just going round in please, a perpetual please circle. Please, weigh in on that one. But here's what I realised this weekend, Dave. I felt like I've started. I, part of me realised I've seen this Premier League race before. Yeah. Do you know where I've seen it? Where? The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Every team is flawed. City lack a defence. Chelsea lack a striker. Arsenal lack confidence. Liverpool are Dorothy, who's just not in Kansas anymore. Mm -hmm. If I only had a 
I mean, it's just like, I don't know who the and Wicked Witch of the East is or but whatever. But there has to be a wizard behind the curtains. Whoever is writing this season of the Premier League, they need a whopping great studio deal, Rog. I'm pretty sure it's Robbie Musto. It's not. I think it's J.J. Abrams. Could be the two Wobbies together. Oh, Robbie. <laughs> I don't know. Robbie Earl tends to overreact a little bit. I notice that Robbie Earl gets very excited and he goes, based on one half performance of football he can go wildly onto another point of view than he offered before what? he gets overexcited Robbie Earl I like him they've but he gets overexcited they both look like they've been contestants on Queer Eye for the straight guy did you notice that do you think Rebecca Lua has uh, made them step up their game well Men in Blazers tweeted Kyle Martino yeah we said Kyle have you started dressing the two wobbies <laughs> what did he write back he wrote back can't take credit they're in top top form of their own and he tweeted us back a group MMS that all uh, NBC broadcasters share. Text message after text message. He t- he'd, he'd open the texting up with, Earl is matching his tie with his highlighter. Now that's a pro. <laughs> <laughs> and Robbie Earl wrote back, details only caught by a stylish eye, my friend. And then read that one, David. Is this from Rebecca Lua? Oh, she does text. She d- doesn't tweet, but she does text. Ha ha. He's another highlighter thief like you. A highlighter thief. There's been some highlighting, uh, highlighter thieving going up in uh, Connecticut. It's a dream in my life to be on that group MMS eventually, (laughs) David, to work my way up. (laughs) We could figure it out. Yeah, I was interested. The the sleeveless uh, top that Rebecca Lua was wearing. Yeah, stolen from Tim Sherwood's wardrobe, probably. The amount of body makeup that that must conceal all of her tattoos. The sleeves, <laughs> a Tony Pulis arm sleeves, Rog. It can't be, uh, can't be easy to get that much makeup. <sighs> anyway, we said on to the football, Rog, and all we're talking about is the uh, NBC Sports uh, studio team. United nil, Liverpool three. Gerrard and Liverpool do a demolition job on a woeful, woeful Man United who lose what feels like their 87 home game of the season in what can only be called a humiliating capitulation. Actually, their away form has been very good. Right? They're the third best away team in the Premier League, Man United. Yeah. At home, fortress Old Trafford, they've been horrible. <sighs> it's like a time capsule, this game. They go back to the 1980s when Liverpool were great and Manchester United had unfulfilled aspirations to match them. This was only the second time Liverpool had gone to Manchester ahead of United at this stage in the season since 1991. And it was a day of poetry and emotion. From the very beginning, when they pulled up that banner, the Liverpool fans, they obviously listened to GFOP John Green, and they held up that huge sign saying, Make us dream. It was beautiful. But from the opening, you kind of knew what was going to happen. United huffed and puffed and tackled, tried to get stuck in. They would look very, very English. But Liverpool, they had this cutting edge United couldn't match. And I started to feel sorry for United within 15 minutes, Dave. They just lacked intelligence. They lacked ideas. Awful. Yeah, it was a, it was a, I listened to this game on the radio first before I then watched it on television uh, later in the weekend. And on the radio, as the commentators were commentating on it, they were being assaulted by text messages and tweets from listeners around the world, who, Man United fans, who thought that they were being incredibly biased in favour of Liverpool. <laughs> and the commentators were getting more and more angry and they were sort of saying, well, no, actually, we're just calling it as it is. Man United are being dominated in every single... Uh, phase of the field. And there's no system. They go, we just don't recognise what Man United are set out, what on earth they're trying to do. They didn't seem to have a plan A. Certainly there was no plan B. 
two goals down. David Moyes not going to his bench. Well, you, you look at it, right from the beginning, it was Rooney and RVP together. And you match them to Sturridge and Suarez, who were running for each other, trying to link up. And you realise United just look like 11 individuals who lack combinations, they lack interplay. Sturridge and Suarez, they're telepathic brothers. Rooney and RVP, they, they seem to be like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, just absolutely out to kill each other. And the Mata isn't really linking with either of them. They're all playing off a very different dance card. The first goal, Raphael, a career not fulfilled, really. When they arrive, those two twins, they look beautiful. They look like the strokes come to life. Um, It was irrational, first of all, that he stayed on the field. Oh, that was him. I can't believe he stayed on the field after that challenge. One minute, 26 seconds after his first yellow. I did not understand what would mentally make him do it give away the penalty and then I realised it was just fear and self-loathing fear of Suarez fear of Sturridge and self-loathing of what his team had become Stevie G stepped up to drive the the ball home and a big big penalty for him obviously the words of Alex Ferguson banded around from his autobiography that he wasn't a top top player this was a top top penalty from a man who is a top top player eighth goal versus United in 33 games is there a bigger time gent that England have created of this generation Gerard is a world-class footballer. Anyone who doubts it anywhere in the world is proven wrong. What an amazing second half of the season this guy has had. And it's not just because of his performance on the field, his technical ability. And it's not just his leadership qualities. There's just He has a level of fight within him. It's why, there, and there are a few other English players in the Premier League, I dare not mention, Rog, who have the same quality. It's that fight, which is why these English players are so valuable to these Premier League teams because they care so much about the fate of their teams late in the season. And he's a fantastic thing going for this team. May also mention again Jordan Henderson, somebody who had oh, scorn pulled on him ran ran. by Sir Alex Ferguson. He ran back and forth. He chiruns and dolos, and we should mention that in the obviously the week that, that Steve Trundolo has retired. Um, this guy, Chirons and Dolo, is better than anyone in the game right now. You know how good he is? He's making that Liverpool jersey grow on me. It's growing on me. <laughs> that's, that's impossible. So, but some, the amount of somehow, space that he covered, and no one tracking him, no one. Somehow that jersey even suits John Flanagan. It makes him look ugly beautiful. Uh, Flanagan's mould does look good in that jersey. Fa- John Flanagan is fast becoming the Tilda Swinton of the English Premier League. But I, I, you talk about mindset. Mindsets of winners with Stevie Gerrard. I was trying to understand Moyes' mindset through this game, David. Because yeah. to me, it's becoming the true definition of March Madness. You know, on the, in the middle of the, the uh, Yom Kippur walk, Moshe Dayan was rumoured to be under such stress he had a nervous breakdown. Uh-huh. He was like the minister of defence, or defence, as they say in Israel. Um, every time they cut to Moyes on the sideline, I thought about Moshe Dayan. I asked people at halftime what they thought was going on in United's locker room at the culture czar said, and men in blazers, Moyes is screaming... Rooney is smoking, RVP's finishing a painting, Mata and De Gea are napping, and Fellaini is just sobbing. I mean, they came back on, 43 seconds, the most ridiculous penalty possibly. Yeah. Jones on Allen, 2-0. Old Trafford has become English football's Grey Gardens. Here's the big question, David. United had one shot on goal the whole game. Liverpool had more shots, three times more shots on goal from penalties alone. How does that happen? I mean, I, I can only reconcile that David Moyes is, is, is doing some kind of a Joaquin Phoenix and admit that this year of just getting nothing and nothing out of Yanazai, Mata, Rooney and RVP, how, how do you get nothing out of them? One shot. It's all been a big piece of performance art, David. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I said on the radio earlier this week, this has made me really re-evaluate 
how I felt about Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, I mean, I knew he was in a good, good way. Yes, I knew he was good. I didn't realise what an amazing people leader he was. Forty um, point swing from this this season to last season. Yeah, and I just don't know. And I think it's certainly making me reevaluate some of these uh, players. Um, you know, a lot of guys in the Man United squad. There's a lot of England fans are talking about this. That a lot of players have been automatic. Uh, picks for, for for England out of that Man United squad, and you've got to have some doubt right now about whether these many of these players are really good enough. Watching the performances week in week out, yeah, I mean, watching United fall this far, it's like seeing Alicia Keys doing a proactive commercial, <laughs> <laughs> or Mr T shilling for Flavor Wave Oven Turbo. How the mighty have fallen! Can we say about that third penalty? Yeah. Just idiocy by Vidic, and possibly not given for the foul, but just for terrible decision making. It's like he wanted to get sent off. I used to play on an under-nine rugby team that would lose every game 73-0, and we either feigned injury or, uh, or got Tackled sent off. player without the ball. Yeah, got sent off, and like, there'd be four players left on the end of a frigid, awful uh, kind of Liverpool night. And that's why I felt like Vidic would just like sod this. Gerard did miss the penalty, just as Roy Hodgson noted to self, if we face a World Cup penalty shootout, make sure Steven Gerrard takes the first five pens. But Suarez's goal... By the way, I don't think Suarez is going to score again this season. I just overcome. There can be no greater disincentive for scoring than having Martin Skirtle ride on your shoulders and rub his man parts all over the back of your head. <laughs> it was the most gratuitous. He got Skirtle. Did you see it? it he got Skirtle. I don't know what they said on the radio, but it was the most gratuitous and unpleasant sex scene I've ever seen. Yeah, that, I did. That, I saw that later. That doesn't have Lena Dunham on it. I mean, it was ugly. It was as ugly as when Liverpool fans unfurled their David Moyes' A Football Genius banner was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. But, oh, I love it. But David Moyes goes to the post-match uh, mix zone. He does his interview. Sounds like he knows what's going on. It's all going to be okay. Defiant with the press yesterday in advance of their Champions League tie today uh, against Olympiacos. Yeah. He said, you know, my future's not changed one bit. Yeah. Well, um, he didn't actually say what the future was, Dave, which is probably working <laughs> in Subway. Uh, He's a Philip Bankston of the English Premier League. Go on. Pictures in the paper today of Bobby Charlton and uh, Sir Alex Ferguson meeting with David Gill, you know, eight hours before the time. They looked like the beginning of Reservoir. It it looked like Sopranos for me. It looked like Sopranos (laughs) before somebody gets whacked. Um, I don't know, uh, Rog, it's it's not going the right way. Sponsors are pulling out uh, out of that Manchester United team or threatening to pull out. Um, Paul Moisey, though. I mean, he aged in 90 minutes. He aged 30 years. I think I tell you this: he looks older than Sir Alex to me now. He does. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going to come first, sacking him or him retiring. But I do, from a human perspective, and I'd love you to weigh in on this. His dreams have been smashed. We're, we're looking at a man whose dreams have been smiling. <laughs> you were smiling with your smiling. eyes. You are your eyes. You know how a man smiles with his <laughs> eyes. That, eyes. That might just be the happiest I've, got, I've ever seen. I've you. got sore eyes. <laughs> Okay, try and say that again. I think think his dreams have been smashed. Yeah. This is his worst... This is the human being's worst... I've shut my eyes now. I know, I can see. This is his worst professional nightmare. He's been given the greatest gift. Yeah. And he's been humiliated week after week in full global view. In less than a year. If he was a Japanese general, the dishonour and shame he'd brought upon the Moise family, he would have reached for that short-bladed tanto and plunged it into his own midriff. Yeah. I feel terrible for him, David. From a human perspective... Do you not, As opposed to a... Do you not, do you not relate to that? Well, of course. I think it's... I don't really relate to it, but it's a... Um, you know, I've never been at that, you know, 
echelon of the, of the footballing profession. We're here in suboptimal land. You've never gone gone home and sat in your lazy boy with a Johnny Walker Red and the packet of Marlborough Reds and just felt as numb as King James in 1513. He got the best job in the world and he's been found out. Now, of course, he could still turn it around. He could beat Olympiacos uh, tonight, could win that uh, you know big tie at the weekend, tough game against West Ham. Um, and you know what? Finish the season strong, showing some progress and, and turning it around. And by the way, there are still a lot of very good players in that team who can go and do that. <laughs> Look it up. Battle of Flodden, 15-13. Oh, we I sh- know that one. We should talk about, yeah, it's probably England's greatest day. Can we talk about Liverpool for a second? Because I did. I love the banner. I love the joy. Liverpool fans, and we had a lot call into our show, right, Dave, on Monday, mm-hmm. who'd grown up in the 80s when the club were the best in Europe, the mm-hmm. gold standard. They must be experiencing the kind of feelings I exper- I'll experience when woolly mammoths or dodos are, are kind of reclaimed. It'll be deeply emotional and, and a thing of wonder. They ended the game singing, we're going to win the league, we're going to win the league, at Old Trafford. Emotions really don't get more primal than that. Will they, Dave? Will they? Will they? Will they? They certainly could do. Uh, momentum is on their side, and they, though it isn't completely under their control, they do have Man City and Chelsea... Um, you know, to play at Liverpool. And that could be, win both of those games. They could go a long way uh, towards uh, towards making it and uh, giving Stevie G an opportunity to lift the Premier League trophy. And I've got to tell you, as somewhere from far from a neutral in this situation, I am enjoying watching Liverpool play football. Um, this is so good for England, so good for these... Uh, for not only for Gerard, but all these young English players playing in that team, playing in that squad. And uh, I think they're playing in a way that Roy has got to be looking at them and saying, my God, this is how England can go in a play. Um, with, you know, this uh, attacking wing play, three play, three up front. And he's actually got a better back four, Roy Hodgson, than Liverpool. Five straight Premier League games, 26 of the last 30 available points. Credit Brendan Rodgers for his tactical flexibility. And... Um, completely changing his approach from last season to make this counter-attacking force that play with such venom. Have to be said, they didn't even play that well against United. United just looked like a mediocre mid-table banana that Liverpool didn't slip on. In terms of England, Davo, your words, inshallah, inshallah. Yeah, it's interesting the point. You made a point on the radio this week that I've really been thinking about a lot. Because, of course, Brendan Rodgers deserves an enormous amount of credit. And this isn't to take any credit away from Brendan Rodgers. But you mentioned that when you went over in the new year, Raheem Sterling was sort of a player who you weren't even sure what kind of a future he was going to have at Liverpool. A lot of doubt about his maturity, a lot of doubt about his ability to go and truly contribute to that first team, a lot of doubt about whether he was going to stay at the club. I did a series of interviews with the Youth Academy um, heads who all got fired the week after I was there. Um, so I never did anything with it, but they'd been told uh, that Raheem Sterling was so raw and inconsistent that he could benefit with a loan period. And so Brendan Rodgers, you know, whether through circumstance or because he just tactically saw something, gives him a run out in the side. He goes crazy. It's really not been the key player for Liverpool, but it's been one of the keys in their success. And sometimes timing is everything. And momentum means a huge amount in the Premier League. And they've got tremendous... Tremendous momentum, and it's just fun watching them play football. Let's talk about momentum fizzling out briefly. Well, I mean, of course, you know, Aston Villa won, Chelsea nil. I'd rather talk about the victory over 
uh, Galatasaray uh, last night. But uh, yes, the little horse, Rog, finally clipped the fence, clipped the fence with all four legs <laughs> of its little legs against Brad Guzan's villa. Uh, Willian and Ramirez uh, both sent off, uh, one of them potentially more justifiably than the other. Um, Mourinho is banished to the stands, and Chelsea proved that they are mortal after all. Yeah, this is sort of like, you know, where Chelsea have struggled this year. This is sort of a familiar... We've had a few games this season like this. Uh, one should say Mourinho has never won at Aston Villa. Yeah, Aston why, Villa. Why is that, David? I think it's it's that to me. Well, he, he, he obviously likes Paul Lambert. Um, they seem to get along very, very well. It's been a club that he's often had respect for. But I think they go there and they've just struggled. Maybe Aston Villa just love playing against Chelsea. I mean, this is an industrial area. It's grim, to be honest. It's most famous for its massive roadways. Spaghetti mm-hmm. Junction, they call it. Black Sabbath reared there. That should pretty well tell you all you need to know. Ozzy mm-hmm. Osbourne, huge Villa fan. Drawn three, uh, lost three as a manager there, Jose Mourinho. Yeah. yeah, he struggles. Doesn't He likes battles between blue and red. He finds claret and blue just kind of <laughs> difficult to play against. But for me, David, your team have played mediocre all season but always found a way to win. <clears throat> this game... Well, I mean, no, Chelsea have... I don't think they've played mediocre all season. I don't think that's entirely fair. No, there was a half where they actually... No, I think, that, I think they've, they've, they've only had a few halves of football where they've played spectacular football. But I think Chelsea had a game here where they dominated possession and they put themselves in scoring positions so many times and failed to even get off a shot. They get too intricate. It's like Salieri. Too many notes, too many passes, too many kind of things. And they just uh, find a way to conspire not to go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and then the game cre- gets cre- tight. Credit Brad Guzan, by the way. Oh, fantastic. Jumped game. around like a House of Pain tribute band. By the way, credit Villa. This is a team who, you know, early this season, a lot of people had written off, a lot of people questioning the American owner and, and his ambition for this club. And I think that they turned around and with some very, very good young players. This is the second season in a row that Aston Villa look like they're going to be safe, look like they're going to stay up. You know, I love an English player with a foreign oh, name. Fabian Delph is a more, player. Right? Fabian Delph is a player I've liked for a long time. Would love him to get a, a look into the England squad. He, um, fantastic performance for the whole 90 minutes. And the goal was just sensational. Oh, he just kept driving. He charged into the box. And then that kind of flick you don't really expect from a boy born in Bradford, England. No, no you don't. And the flick tantalisingly passed past the forehead of a certain John Terry. Who yeah. was unable to stop it. Yeah. That made it arguably even more delightful. <laughs> but... You can't say Villa didn't deserve the goal, all credit to them, but the game had turned at 68 minutes, the second yellow for Willen. Yeah. Some would say, should have got a final warning from the ref. Others, me, would have said that it was a deliberate, cynical effort to break up play. Oh, well, it was, here's the thing. I, mean, I thought it was a, a somewhat harsh decision. But you can't, and this is how I always feel about cards, is that you've seen them given. You've seen a yellow card given there. You've seen it. You've seen it done. And he can't complain. What on earth was he thinking on a yellow card to go and make that challenge? It was just crazy. Ramirez's challenge is just indefensible. That was appalling. It was an intent to hurt. The kind of tackle you can only make when you're wearing a mask. To it hide was your horrible. Shirt. It was absolutely horrible. And, uh, and behaviour predictably hilarious. Yeah. But he made himself the story. He made himself the bigger focus of the, of the media afterwards. By walking onto the field um, as if he was super law. I've got to say, you said he seems to have a nice relationship with Paul Lambert. I want yeah. to talk to you about his friendly dance of death that he does with him, where they hug each other with the barely concealed menace of, of haters. The Mourinho neck cuff, I guess that's what we're both really talking about. A lesson possibly learned from Darth Vader, where you, you kind of jocularly put your... 
grip on somebody you're speaking to's <laughs> neck, but you're really showing that you have mastery, that you're under his control, <laughs> that you are his friend because he tolerates that interaction. Do you ever use this tactic, David? I don't, but I do recognise that everything that Jose Mourinho does is calculated. And, but frankly, he's trying to win a title. He's trying to win trophies. And uh, it's why most Premier League fans would want Jose Mourinho, some more than others right now, uh, managing their own football I prefer club. not to speak. And then I speak and I speak and I speak. I have to say, Dave, suddenly this game, Chelsea seemed ordinary. Willen had seemed so deadly earlier in the season. But he looks now willing with no end product. Oscar seems like a spent shell casing. Ramirez is like a middle distance runner, the Brazilian James Milner. Matic, so phenomenal when they're under pressure. Not so phenomenal when they're trying to go forward. Yeah, I think Matic is still... Look, Matic hasn't been in the club very long. I, I don't know that Matic deserves to be in that list of, of players who've been struggling. Ramirez has struggled all season. Oscar, definitely, you're absolutely right. He's tired. He's gone off the boil uh, pretty significantly. And Willian, it's interesting. We, we, um, uh, we were talking the other day about this. Willian, you know, he hasn't had an amazing first season at Chelsea. He's had a couple of highlights. But he doesn't often look like a huge threat to score. He's not like a goal-scoring midfielder. So he doesn't in any way replace Mata and what Mata gave to Chelsea in terms of the number of goals he scored. But, but, but part of me thought that going down to nine men was Mourinho's way, and we'll talk about this. Like Sean Connery, he pulls a knife, you pull a gun. They go down to ten men, we'll go down to nine. Yeah. Um, we tweeted, if Chelsea are a little horse, Liverpool are the Chihuahua, what are Aston Villa? At Win Brown said... They are the pygmy, Zebra David. I mean, and the one thing I'd say, I'd take issue with the idea that Chelsea uh, have been ordinary. I think this game, like a, lot of, uh, like a lot of teams in the Premier League, they have hiccups, they have games that they lose. Chelsea is still top. They still play very good defensive football. They're not going to concede many goals like the one that Fabian Delft uh, scored <sighs> against them. They're not going to do it very and often. still, Davo in Europe. <sighs> do you know what the first thing I thought? This is what positive thought. The first thing I thought when the game ended and we'd lost it 1-0, I thought, suppose we're just going to have to win the Champions League. Yeah. And I got up and enjoyed the rest of my day. As they say in Turkey, mazel tov, mate. <laughs> OK, Tottenham 0, Rog, Arsenal 1. Uh, I love this game of football. An early, early howitzer from Thomas Rosicki. What a goal, Rog. Is all Arsenal need to win the North London derby. Tim Sherwood's team throw everything at the Gunners, including his gilet, Rog, but cannot muster some would say, deserved equaliser. Yeah, I thought Tottenham looked quite good for most of this game. Quite good. Yeah. It's, it's like, to me, this was less a football game, more a scientific experiment to see what happens when a physically main team, Arsenal, no Ramsey, Walcott, Ozil, Moore, line up against a mentally deranged one. That's what Tottenham are to me right now. This was like the not-in-the-face derby. It was like watching bum fights, David. Do you know, remember bum fights? That horrible, horrible series on YouTube we were introduced to by our serious producer, Mike Corbett in which some bloke has made a business out of paying two homeless men to have a brutal, brutal street fight. That's what it felt like watching this game. It wasn't top-of-the-table stuff, but you couldn't take your eyes off it. God, sometimes we see football so differently, Rog. I thought the Tottenham played for the first time in a few weeks. Tottenham really exploded. I thought Andros Townsend looked like class in this game. He misplaced a few passes, but he looked like class. And Tottenham went at Arsenal's back four so heavily. And I thought this was an entertaining, entertaining game oh, of Premier League football. Bum fight, some would say, is quite entertaining. <laughs> two minutes in, Arsenal, they scored too soon. They knew it. Everyone at the stadium knew it. We all knew it at home. And they had to spend the next 88 minutes trying not to pay the iron price for that mistake. It was some goal. It was so good. You know, sometimes I think 
footballers, Chelsea definitely are, uh, are guilty of this. They try and place the ball in the back of the net. Riziki just, like, thumped his laces through it. He leathered it. He hit that ball as hard as if someone had told him it was Piers Morgan's head. (laughs) That's what I thought when I said. But then Arsenal, they reverted to pre-Wenger type. They were cautious, grim, all defence. Defence is the best offence. And Spurs played this kind of fragile... Spurs played this kind of frantic, admirable... Frenzied long ball, the football equivalent of Nicholas Bentner grinding his genitalia against the back of a Danish taxi cab. The problem is goals for both teams. I mean, Giroud hasn't scored. I think he's scored five goals in 16 Premier League games. That's a Chelsea-esque problem. And Spurs, I mean, they just lumped the ball towards Adebayor, who actually was quite admirable under the circumstances, but they couldn't conjure anything. And the game became all about watching poor Tim Sherwood suffering like... Alex Delage from Clockwork Orange on the sideline. He, he, he has anger issues, Rod. He, he was, in, he was like and this is where the Mussolini declare war on France and England from the sideline. And where Mourinho is calculated, Sherwood is just losing control. The throw of the ball at Sanya. Double throw. Twice. 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 And the throwing of the gilet to that the ground. That was interesting. He took off, if you didn't see it, he took off his sleeveless jacket, chucked it, on the floor, when he did, uh, the words of German anti-Nazi theologian Pastor Niemöller came to mind. Mm-hmm. First they came for the gilets, and I did not speak out because I was not a gilet. There was nothing that could be done. 16 clearances for Koscielny, 20 for Murtasaka. Arlo White moment of the week was when he called in the big German magnet. And Sherwood at the end just left to bemoan that anyone who saw that would have known that Tottenham didn't deserve to lose it. They didn't. They didn't, but having said that, Spurs season is now effectively over and they'll revert to their... Probably the, the reason that Spurs have been put on this face of the earth, David. One of the to reasons supply I... the MLS with quality strikers. <laughs> oh, my word. Roberto Soldado is probably looking at Jermaine Defoe, who we'll talk about later, and going, hmm, Shivas, USA. Know. Mm. Yeah, after Robbie Keane as well. I must say, one of the reasons I enjoyed this game so much, Arlo White, growing on me more and more and more. One of the things I love about Arlo White is he loves a bit of Premier League violence. <laughs> he is nostalgic for the time when you could tackle someone two-footed studs up from behind and it wasn't even a foul. Uh, he loves a bit of piling onto the goalkeeper, a shaky goalkeeper. Oh, let's go and test him. Needs to be tested right now with some high balls. Oh, I love it. He likes a bit of violence. He listens to the pod. He's probably even now Googling bum fight. I know. Bum fight. <laughs> he, loves, he loves a bum fight. Bum fight. Um, uh, anyway, uh, ultimately a good win for Arsenal. Keeps them very much... In there in the title challenge. And for one more season, Tottenham and North London's Randy Quaid to Arsenal's <laughs> Dennis. Uh, Hull nil, Man City 2, Rog. Fantastic uh, uh, victory here for Man City. City go down to 10 men after a Vincent company straight red, but dig deep to fend off a spirited Hull City, not Tigers, and move up to second place. Yep, two chunks of the quadruple may have evaporated, but you have to say City showed there's still some fight. In the old wounded lion, yeah. I, I, when company, I mean, a symbolic red for him because he's a leader of this team, uh, departed. There was still 70 minutes plus to go on the game. But no sooner had I typed Vendorpunkt, question mark, into my Twitter box than City scored. Or as at Bryce Kirschenbaum described it, 
Hull made the big mistake of going up a man too soon, David. Yeah. And Man City actually looked better with 10 men than they did with 11 men. What a response. Fantastic goal from uh, David Silva. Yeah, he passed and received that ball three times before curving the ball like a leather Oh, ranger. bend it like David Silva. It was a fantastic goal. And they, they played great. One would have to say that Hull, is, you know, for all the Hull fans, the thousands of Hull fans who listen to the pod, yes. have to be somewhat disappointed in your team that you didn't really get it together and pull it together when you were... Uh, a man up. I mean, they, they spent 80 minutes lumping a stockpile of forwards onto the field, most of whom just demonstrated only the vaguest understanding of the offside rule. Possibly my favourite moment of the weekend, David. George Boyd and Joe Hart. <laughs> First of all, I love the name George Boyd, a, parent, uh, a guy whose parents were clearly big culture club fans back in the day. George Boyd, Boyd George. Um, I, I think it was a penalty, by the way. Robbie Earl said it wasn't because of the reaction of Joe Hart. By the way, Joe, Joe Hart's reaction was Alec Baldwin-esque. It was comic <laughs> anger. It was like vaudevillian anger. Joe Hart, I believe, has missed his calling. He would have been an amazing silent movie star, the Premier League's Al Jolson. What did you make of that ah, from a human perspective? I don't know, Rog. It's tough to say. Sometimes I don't know what goes through Joe Hart's head. I'm not convinced that Joe Hart is the brightest uh, bulb in the electric shop. I really don't think that he... <laughs> thinks very hard at any point during the game or reflects much after the game or thinks a lot before he goes and plays football. I was honestly, that took me back to being in Kiev during that penalty shootout when he was pulling those faces. Yeah. Is that, there's a little Al Jolson that lies within him. Um, Jekko sealed it with his first goal in 10 hours, 2 minutes. That David Silver pass gave me the thickening. I just want to go on record and say David Silver is the kind of man I wish I was. There's a doppelganger, which is someone who's your likeness. I believe David Silver is my human antonym. He's suave, <laughs> subtle, creatively brilliant, modest and humble, and I'm the opposite of all the of things. You are the complete polar opposite of David Silver. God, and he's amazing. I don't believe it. You're a beautiful man, Rog. Uh, finally, and this will... Look, if the smile isn't on your face already, uh, Chelsea lose, David Moyes, David Moyes in trouble. Here we go, Rog. Everton 2... Cardiff won uh, amidst Goodison Park scenes of epiphany and rapture. An injury time goal from Seamus Coleman denies Cardiff a hard fought and much needed point. I hated it. Why? 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 Is it because you're watching Goodison Park going crazy and being so excited to win that might take them into the Europa League? There are too many Everton fans who are excited to go into the Europa League, Rog. It was an amazing moment. By the way, Jerry D opened the scoring. Cardiff came back. Their Scottish goalkeeper, David Marshall. Yeah. God, superhuman. Um, 93rd minute, Joy, Seamus Coleman. He mishit the shot. Did you see the shot? Yeah. It kind of floated into the net like a Brandon McCarthy changer. It was like a 60-degree lob wedge when you get way under it. That's what it, it was. It was amazing. It took 7 minutes, 56 seconds to cross the line from yeah, the moment. Into the wind. This <laughs> My blood pumped. My spirit soared. Seamus, oh, it's beautiful. He sprinted around the field in an unbridled human frenzy. Yeah. And then the truth hit me. You got into the Europa League. The goal is edged as ever nearer. The Europa League. It's darkness. A gift. The Europa League is a gift which is about as well received as a mogwai from your dad for Christmas from a dusty Chinatown store. It's going to kill us all, Dave. It's going to kill us all. Is there any chance... I know you believe this. I know that you're looking at it and you absolutely believe that this is how you truly feel. But is there any chance that this isn't just a protection mechanism 
that in case you finish sixth, behind Manchester United or somebody else or Tottenham in fifth, that it isn't just, thank God, we finished there and no, we didn't want to go you there. You know what? I've cried wolf too often with my protection yeah. mechanisms. This is no protection you mechanism. You do not want to be in the Europa League. But talking you see about, no value for Everton Talking about United again, League. that brings us to the bottom of the table. Yeah. Oh, what is it down there, David? I mean, it's crazy. You can't even it's, call it the bottom of the table, Rod. It's tight. It's tight. It's tight. It's tight. It's tighter. There aren't enough T's tight. in tight to describe how tight it is. It's too tight. When I say the word, how do you get T followed by a T without? That's how tight it is. needs three T's. Yeah, that's what it is. Oh, you love the bottom of the table even more than a man who loves to go to proctology conferences. I mean, you can't say Fulham are at the bottom of the table. One point off Cardiff and Sunderland. Four points off Palace and West Brom. Five points off Norwich and Swansea. Six points off Hull. Seven points off West Ham. I mean, West Ham, by the way, we regard them as one of the better teams in the Premier League this year. (laughs) (laughs) They are... It's all of these teams still fighting. And by the way, Stoke City, Aston Villa, not completely free clear. You've got 11 teams there, Rog, who are still in a relegation battle. Amazing, amazing stuff and we are 30 38 15 19 of the way through the premier league season brilliant stuff can't wait final day of the season rog it's going to be amazing last year i think we didn't have anything to decide on the final day i I feel a pub takeover yeah i feel it coming i feel that coming definitely okay rog uh joining us now on the pod one of your heroes one of my heroes too i love an australian footballer Tim Cahill. He and I've got the same arm tattoos. <laughs> yeah. Tim Cahill is an attacking midfielder for the New York Red Bulls, the Australian national team also. He began his career at Millwall, so we know he's hard, and spent six seasons there, leading the club to their first FA Cup final ever. In 2004, he transferred to Everton. The promised land. As you call them, Nigel Rodge became a club legend. And not just for that goal celebration, for all those goals he scored with his head. Over eight seasons at Goodison, he made 250 appearances for the club, scored in three Merseyside derbies at Anfield, Mm. and was nominated for the Ballon d'Or in 2006. In 2012, he moved to the New York Red Bulls, making 2013's best 11 and scoring the fastest ever goals the league has seen. Seven seconds. How do you score in seven seconds? Cahill has also been a constant presence in the national soccer team since his 2004 debut. For the Socceroos, he scored Australia's first two goals ever in a World Cup in 2006. And in February, became the nation's all-time leading goal scorer. He will again represent his country in Brazil this summer in his third World Cup appearance. Welcome to the pod, Mr. Tim Cahill. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you. Absolutely delighted. You are a bone Friday Everton legend. You're a, true am- <laughs> you're a true ambassador for MLS, I think, since your arrival uh, in 2012. I've got to say, when I think about you, Tim, I think about adjectives that are rare for a footballer. I think about loyalty, devotion, professionalism. Where, where do these attributes come from for you, Tim? I think for me, my strong uh, Samoan heritage and my parents and my family, where I come from, it was a hard life growing up and <clears throat> growing up in a household where you were renting and moving homes. Uh, constantly brothers, a sister, uh, parents having to provide for them and seeing your parents work day in, day out. Um, when you have those attributes and you see how hard people work, then 
you know, going into football, I, t- I take that with me. And you, you want to do the best for, for who, who obviously gives you your life. And that was Mill and Everton. And so long as you can, you know, really express your emotions on and off the pitch, not only as a footballer, but to the fans, um, you know, people can feel that. And I always want to be a value to, to a football club or to a league and to be an ambassador and a representative that, that leaves legacies. You know, I think, um, when you leave the season and, and, and you're loyal and, and people respect you, um, you, you've got friends for life and obviously a relationship for life. So it's a strong trait that I've, that I've got for my family, but something that I'm really proud of and obviously uh, trying to bring to New York as well. I, mean, I love what you're talking about, about that, that commitment, that hardworking uh, kind of ethic, the Samoan route, because watching you, your late runs you make into the box, they're no secret. But nobody, it seems, can do anything to stop them. In, in, in the English Premier League, you're five foot ten, Tim. You scored 21 goals with your head. Only Peter Crouch, who's got nine inches on you, <laughs> headed home more. Can, can you pinpoint the first time you realised you could leap higher than everybody around you? I think it's a desire to train hard. You know, the one thing that I say to children um, when they play football, like, you know, if, you, if you're good at something, then you've got to keep practising at it. And the one thing I was good at was at a young age, was heading a ball. And everyone says to me, like, you know, how do you head a ball so well? Well, I say that um, I head a ball like someone kicks a ball. Um, (laughs) And it's not an attribute where people like to train because they're scared of it, especially when it's near their face. But um, I look at it as if training hard in the gym, timing of runs, and the thing is it's also accuracy. Once you're in the air and you've got two defenders around you and a goalkeeper to beat, it's about putting, placing the ball in the right area. So, you know, it, it, it's all well and good practicing um, training grounds where there's no goalkeeper and, and no defenders, but, you know, I try and emulate the, the same things in training, and, and I want the biggest guy like Alave to, to try and smash me because in the end when I find that one moment where he, he switches off, I drop my shoulder and in behind him and then boom, there's Tim Carroll at the back post again and he, he turns around and he'll shake his head and he'll wonder how it's happened. But football is all about moments. You know, there's 90 minutes of football to produce something. There's not, you know, you don't want to try 90 times to do the same thing. You, you actually want to be cute and you want to make sure you reserve your energy and, and the state of play, where the game's at, tactically where the other team's at. And, you know, some games there might not be that opportunity for me, but lo and behold, uh, you know, I always try and make sure that I put myself in a position that, that's going to be hard to mark. And then obviously it's all about the execution at the end of it. Well, um, you, you, this sounds to me a little bit like a man who grew up playing rugby and is not afraid to put his face where the boots are. But you've come over to America, you've come to this league, You've come at a fascinating time. There's the repatriation of American stars. There's the the race to become a super club, the Galaxy, Toronto, Portland and Seattle. Obviously, you've got the Red Bulls uh, in New York City. You have Manchester City entering the league. You've got David Beckham wanting in. I mean, you can say the league's television footprint still needs work. But as a player, can you describe how you see the league in its standing right now? For me, it's one of the fastest-growing leagues in the world. Um, you see the stature. One of the most impressive things is um, the grassroots of how many kids, boys and girls, play across the whole of America. With that, you know you have a foundation um, with a country. Um, from that is every team owns its own stadium and owns its own training ground. And then from that, you've got uh, a basis where you know the clubs are very powerful with um, 
with with the backing that they have, uh, the one thing that needs to improve is obviously the 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 football. But that happens over time, and when you bring the quality of player in, like a Jim Defoe or a Bradley or a Dempsey or players like that, um, to the league. But one thing also you have to remember is is uh, you know the players being signed for the right reasons. Yeah, I mean, talking about the quality of the play, you've played in the Premier League, you've played in the Championship. It's a, it's a debate we often have about the standard of MLS. Where do you place it in comparison to English football? Yeah, you can bring any Premier League team here um, to the MLS and they'll give you a run for their money. Um, one of the, the biggest things that, that I've seen in this in this whole um, development is, you know, the best clubs in the world come to America to play the MLS teams and... Um, the best thing about it is, is they struggle. You know, they don't win games six nil. It's either a draw or, you know, a two one or the MLS team could win. And I just think it's, it, it's it's such a great league in the the stature of the players. They're fit. They're hungry. Um, and as you get the better coaches and as you get the the, the added style of players, um, it improves the game as well. But that's something that they're moving heaven and earth to to bring the quality of players in that helps the stature of the league. Listen, we love America, Tim, on this show, and I, I know that you do too. And one of the many wonders this country offers footballers is just the quality of life. It's, a, it's something you can't get in Europe. MLS offers you, I'd say, relative anonymity off the field. Can you say how much of that is a sell point for MLS when a player like yourself who's been a elite player in Europe considers his options about his next step? Yeah, it's massive. I think for me, I'd played 17 years in England at the highest level. Um, I'd done, you know, so much and achieved everything that I wanted to achieve. But you have to question the player and what they want. I wanted a quality of lifestyle. I wanted a challenge in New York Red Bulls that, you know, had not won nothing in the 18 years as a football club. I wanted um, to play for one of the, the biggest powerhouse teams and test myself. And obviously, week in, week out, uh, I'm under pressure to produce because of this DP status but um, the lifestyle is important because you know I have children and, and things like that but um, I see the vision of the MLS I see where Don Garber wants to take it uh, I've sat with him numerous times and I want to help grow it and I want to be part of this revolution and the most important thing is you know I, I really feel that it's not just about Tim Cahill it's about you know seeing what I can give you know around the training ground off the park uh, on the pitch that adds a lot of value and people might not see it but for the rewards of what we got last year with the supporters shield um you know we, we've gained a hell of a lot in such a short space of time but now it's about growth and, and what you can do with it and how you can build and how you can become a better team and you know overall i feel the connection with the fans i feel the connection with the players and the staff and you know it feels like being at mill or everton because that's what I'm all about. If I'm not part of a project or about something that means something, then I don't want to be here. So I can happily say that, that um, I'm, I'm having a ball and I'm loving the lifestyle as well. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt that you're living right outside of New York City, which is the Liverpool to me. It's the Liverpool of America, Tim. But it takes no, me... it's beautiful. <laughs> you takes me to Everton. You were a true legend. I adored watching you. I know you still watch the club pretty well week in week out. I've got to ask you this. Was it frustrating as a player knowing that money, financial inequality meant that you couldn't win the title before the league had even kicked off? 
Yeah, I think I think it's frustrating to an extent, but also you have to know your parameters. You have to know your, your parameters as a club, as a chairman, um, as a whole organisation. I think the greatest thing about Everton, you know, before I got there, <clears throat> we were struggling, um, you know, to, to stay in the league. Rooney had just left. Um, exactly. So, um, you know, surviving was, was a big deal at Everton, um, you know, three seasons prior. prior. Um They'd signed me for one and a half million pounds. They'd signed Marcus Spent for four four hundred grand, and uh, a month later they sold Wayne Rooney. And then you know the, the fans are probably thinking, "What have we done? Who's Tim Cahill? Who's Marcus Spent?" But you know, I think I think the best thing of what we proved, we went through a season as a team. Uh, we finished fourth in a Champions League spot. Uh, you know, I had probably one of my best seasons ever as an Everton player. But I earned the right to be a player. You know, and from that. We had to build slowly. Like, you know, do you spend astronomical amount of money and try and win the league and then, you know, potentially, uh, you know, uh, burn the candle at both ends? Or do you become this consistent team that's definitely, you know, a force to be reckoned with and finishing in the top eight, top six, year in, year out? Um, I think the way that it's built up and the basis of where it's at now, it's at the point now where maybe it needs that, you know, three players... That, that could make it a title contending team. Uh, right now we're, you know, in the top six and it's probably a reflection on the team that we have, but um, also a lot of credit to Roberto Martinez for the style of football and the way they've gone about it because we're probably one of the hardest teams to beat in the league. But overall, you know, I'm proud of everything in the eight years and I'm proud of what's happening now. That, and, and the best thing is, is, uh, sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for because I know for a fact that the, uh, Bill Kenwright loves the club and he's passionate about it and he's, you know, his heart's in the right place. But when you get that big owner that just wants to buy success, then you lose the uh, authenticity of your brand. You're, you lose the, the feeling of what it becomes and what it means to be an Evertonian. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword, but also I'm proud of right now and the way things are and I'm happy and it, it might need that two or three players to take us to, to a title or, or to, to, to the top four. Oh, we've got Stephen Naismith. We don't need much more there. Uh, <laughs> I, I asked our listeners to talk about their outstanding memories of your time at the club. My mate Scott Dixon, he wrote a beautiful email about what you've referred to, the qualification for the Champions League towards the end of the season, the Newcastle game. Everton were limping to the finish line. He wrote, the game was all pressure and tension. We were 1-0 up. He says, a Mikel Arteta miskick shot fell straight to Timmy in the <laughs> box. He said, I swear to God, for a split second, time stood still. There was absolute silence in Goodison Park. He said, I thought in real time, this is it. This is the chance to wrap it up. In that second, Cahill steadied to shoot. And in the celebrations immediately after, well, what I want to know is, Tim Cahill, what went through your mind at that minute? I think what goes through my mind, I was fearless. You know, I've gone through a whole season of scoring goals and we're, we're, we're in the fourth position. If we won that game, we would have sealed it. But overall, when Mikel had scratched that shot and it fell to my feet, I took a touch with my right foot and just said it again with my other foot. And, uh, you know, it's just when everything goes your way, um, I could have kicked it off my hill and it would have went in, but I, I struck it so sweetly and gave the keeper the eyes. And when it ruffles in the, in the net, I remember running away, um, you know, uncrossing my arms and saying, this is it, we've done it, we've done it, you know, and 
running with all the players and the manager. And, you know, when a manager like David Moyes believes in you and the chairman believes in you and no one knew who Tim Cale was, it was, you know, the first instance to say thank you because, you know, I'd played and I was the unknown and obviously the Everton fans can hold their hands up and, and, and think that, you know, it probably wasn't the best signing at the start. Was, I was just going to be a squad player, but um, you have to prove yourself. And that's probably one of the most magical moments because it was, uh, you know, one of the, the brightest sparks in, 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 in my Everton career. Well, just just listening to you now, it makes me want to rip my own shirt off, Tim. Well, what, <laughs> what, what, what do you think about now? You mentioned David Moyes. How do you understand what he's going through at Manchester United? Um, you can't understand it because if you tried to, uh, I think you'd send yourself crazy. I feel that um, overall he's a great manager regardless. When you go into a situation like this um, after Alex Ferguson and the whole setup, it's definitely in a transitional side from inside the club, from the people that sign the players to um, the physios to everything. The whole setup's been shaken up. Players have obviously, uh, you know, not reacted the best to it and it seems as if you know there's no fluidity um i feel that it's definitely taken more time than what everyone expected and the results have gone against him but it doesn't make you a bad manager what it does is is it obviously going to be one of the biggest challenges for him as a manager and this is why he took the job to test himself at the best and to try and win trophies with one of the best teams in the world and i suppose the only way he can react to this is by uh you know, starting again and rebuilding uh, the foundations of what Man United's all about and, and, and where they want to be. So, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a plan to it. There's a method to the madness. And I suppose being a Man United fan, I've never experienced um, the lows of where they're at now. But um, being a supporter of David Moyes, uh, you know, because I'm so loyal, uh, I know that he's a great manager, but it's, it's, it's definitely a combination of players, and, and everything that comes with it, the staffing and club and transition that, that, that hasn't helped. Question from a listener at Herrod asked, Tim, Europa qualification, is it a good thing for a club like Everton or a bad thing? Might it prevent them from ultimately becoming a top four team? As a player, do you, do you want Europa League or do you kind of not really want to be going to Sheriff and places east midweek? I think you have to think about the supporters as well. I feel that you want the Europa League because it's European football and you can never turn that down. As an Evertonian, um, to travel with away fans and to feel um, the togetherness of what it means to be an Evertonian and to play against these European teams, they're the best away days. I'll never forget some of the best times that we've had as a team and as fans, clapping them and throwing our jerseys into the crowd and... Um, you know, sharing that moment. You know, this is this is what they live for. They live they live to travel. They live they they work during the week to, to, to for these special moments and for players and maybe for people that are tacticians and all this sort of stuff saying to win the league. Well, if you've got a great squad and you're, you're clever enough, you can you can use the youngsters. You can gel all the new talent. You can bring you know unearthed talent that, that that's not been seen to play in a European stage and to test yourself. So. I feel that you should never turn anything that down. And as a player, I would never take it as a second rate because I know how much the fans enjoy it. You're a beautiful, beautiful bloke. Last question for you. World Cup year, Australian sport, it cannot be denied this year. 5-1 whitewash of England in the ashes. That's cricket, America. The, wall <laughs> the Wallabies won practically every match on their spring tour. 
the Kangaroos victory in the Rugby League World Cup. By the way, no one has better nicknames, I think, pound for pound for their sports teams in your nation, Tim. It's quite a year for Australian sports. I will say, tough group, Australia, the Socceroos, Group B. What are you telling yourselves on the Australian team about the, the prospect of Spain, Holland and Chile, Tim? I think one of the biggest things for us is that there's no fear. We're going into this competition with open eyes. It's going to be difficult, but concentrating on the traits of who we are. Um, we work hard. We've got a great setup. We've got a lot of great youngsters. We're in a transition period where um, we're revolutionising the squad and bringing a lot of youngsters. But overall, um, you know, playing against the best is where you want to be as an athlete um, and, and as an Australian soccerer. That um, you know, you're up against the elements, but it's the best place to be because because you never know what can happen in that 95 minutes of football. But uh, I'm quietly confident that we're definitely going to cause some sort of upset in, in, in some of these games. And, and if not, we're going to make a great account of ourselves. I know I'm not the only one who cannot wait to see you. I'd say it's a great testament to you as a human being and as a footballer that there is a legion of Millwall fans, Everton supporters and New York Red Bull aficionados who will all be cheering for you and Australia down there in Brazil. We cannot wait to see you. Tim Cahill, you are an ambassador for the league and for the Red Bulls. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, David. Um, is it hot in here? Yeah, you're tingling. You did. You, you got a little bit red. You but, got that look during the interview a few times. See these? Yeah. These are my smiling eyes. <laughs> Those are your smiling eyes, without a doubt. Yeah, it's a different kind of smile that you're smiling when you're talking about David Moyes. We uh, should mention, by the way, yeah. New York GFOPs. Mm -hmm. The um, Red Bulls next game, March 30th, at home against Shivas, USA. Wow, they should win that one. Um, Rog, uh, the Ravens, from Rumbelow James. Is that a real name? or is It, it must be James Rumbelow. It can't be Rumbelow James. If it is Rumbelow James, that is a name. From Rumbelow James in Nashville, Tennessee. Dear Toilet and Positive, 18-year-old Julian Green is elected to play for the U.S. USA. USA. I've rarely been so excited about American football news. Soccer. One slight problem. I've never seen him play. Are we all getting caught up in the hype, or is this monumental for the United States in 2014 and beyond? Courage. USA. USA. Um... Rog, I should turn everybody's attention to the uh, conversation you had with Alexi Lalas that you've memorialized on ESPNFC.com. You, you and Alexi got on that very quickly yesterday after the U.S. Um, uh, soccer announced the news that Julian Green is elected to play for the U.S. You've won a few Americans who's actually seen him in training with the U.S. men's national team. How good is Julian Green? I think it's a massive... I mean, first of all, I love... Is it monumental? Yeah, it's bigger than that. What's bigger than one? How can you uptick monumental? Okay, I'll come back to you on that. I mean, I, I mean gargantuan. I love how excited America is, as Rumbelow James says, yeah. about a player that almost none of us have seen kickable. Yeah. We are. Mm -hmm. um, I have seen him. He's a terrific player, I can tell you. Watch him in training over two days in Frankfurt. He's good with his left foot, his right foot. He's very quick, both with his mind and with his feet. He can put defenders... Uh, on their tush very, very, very quickly. Obviously, as an 18-year-old, he lacks the physicality that hopefully will develop, and defenders can also very quickly deposit him uh, on his backside. But it, I had a dream last night, David. I had a dream that it's the Ghana game. It's 1-1. He comes on the field in the 78th minute with a little swagger, 
picks up the ball, does a, does a quick exchange of passes with Kyle Beckerman on the edge of the area, just throttles the ball, kind of like Gareth Bell used to when he just drove his foot low through the ball and it just laces it into the opposite corner. I think it's going to be fabulous. I mean, I think it's a massive coup for Jurgen Klinsmann as a recruiter. Um, and I think that um, he would not have signed up if he wasn't going to the World Cup. And I think ultimately, I think he's a terrific talent to add to the squad. That's an interesting point. So I've got a, that's a really good question. So you're saying you don't think he would have said, I intend to play for the US if he hasn't been guaranteed, might be too big a word, but given a strong indication he's going to Brazil. that he will be going he's to going Brazil. He's going to Brazil. And I think that um, he's going to Brazil as a player who brings something very, very different. And I think he, he's going to Brazil um, as a gentleman. For the who, well, for the future, definitely. But he's going to Brazil... Also, as a way, I mean, Jürgen's mantra has been the squad needs to push themselves to that next level. Jürgen has seen several of his key players return back to the United States. And I think that adding this kind of new element to the squad, 85 days away from the World Cup, is possibly Jürgen Klinsmann's way of pushing that squad again out of their comfort zone, challenging them and delivering a message, even to the most established players, that nobody... Nobody has a place on the first 11 that's guaranteed. Well, you've answered most of my next question, which is also knowing Jürgen as you do. Where does the signing of Julian fit into Jürgen's philosophy? The one thing that it does occur to me that it doesn't quite sit with is that this is a young man who's had barely played a minute in a Bayern Munich shirt. He's played second-team, reserve-team appearances. Fourth Fourth division in Bundesliga. He's played two minutes in the Champions League. So where does it fit in? Because surely... You know, a lot of what Jürgen says is he wants players to fight to play in their first teams, that they can't blame the manager, they can't blame the coach, they can't say, well, I'm never getting enough minutes. He wants them to be competing, he wants them to win to make the first team. What signal does this send to the rest? This is what you and Alexi were basically debating. What signal does it send to the rest of the squad? Obviously, the very famous story, 1998, uh, David, David Richard comes in at the last minute. None of the players knew him, and he just went into the squad. Why is this different than that situation? Well, David Regis was a kind of journeyman who'd married an American, moved out, uh, and got a green card at a very late minute. Um, Julian Green was born in America, born in Tampa, uh, left the country when he was two. Um, the most fascinating I mean, thing... does he come back a lot? Is the, he? The, yeah, he does. His father's in Tampa. Terrific okay. gentleman. But the, the, um, the remarkable... Part of this story is his unfulfilled potential. He's still so raw. He's incredibly malleable. We do not know exactly how great this player is going to be. Yeah. I mean, he's st- he, he, he's had he's had a decision, Dave. He's had to look into his own heart and think about how good is he going to be. What is his future? What's his career path? What are the opportunities if he is a member of the German national team, one of the best in the world? What are the marketing opportunities, the commercial opportunities, the professional opportunities if he takes American football to this next level? The most fascinating part of it is we do not know how great he is. He's still a very, very raw, very young prospect. Um, But for Jürgen and his mindset... Uh, Some have said a Theo Walcott kind of a prospect, that kind of a player. For Jürgen and and the signal that he's sending, it's definitely Europe is in the ascendancy. Jürgen has a tough job where he's measuring apples and oranges. How good is a midfielder in the Norwegian league? How do you compare that to an MLS veteran? How good is a defender who's a substitute on a Bundesliga team uh, compared to an MLS veteran, a Turkish league? He's always 
going across leagues. And I think he's made a decision that this gentleman who's trained through the Bundesliga Bayern Munich Academy, trains now with the first team, it's him saying again, yes, Europe is ascendant. Yes, it does translate through to that much that you don't even need to make the first team and you get a golden ticket to the World Cup. Uh, two other things we should mention. This really, this Julian Green story really, you know, makes us focus on the U.S. men's national team. Steve Turundolo, uh retired this week. Rog announced his retirement. Uh, I think that was just yesterday, Tuesday. One of my favourite players I've ever seen uh, play, uh, pull on that U.S. men's national team jersey. Um, you know, his performance, just if nothing else, his performance against England in that 2010 World Cup, he was the U.S.'s best player in that game, and in many games they played. Uh, often underappreciated, he churunned and he doloed, went forward, played well going back. Yeah. We haven't seen another right-back as good as him in a U.S. men's national team shirt ever, we, I don't think. We have not, and he's left a massive hole, massive tactical hole for Jürgen, in his absence, he was a fascinating figure. He mm -hmm. was so remarkable on the field. He was so unassuming off it. He was very Clark Kent Superman, Henry the Mild Manor Janitor, Hong Kong Fui. We loved him. We posted on our Tumblr mm -hmm. uh, the interview from when he jumped on the pod, and you explained Sherundling and Dolowing <laughs> your theory to him. The introduction alone is worth listening to. It will bring a tear to your eye. But it's fitting that Julian Green steps up and joins the American squad. Steve Chirundley leaves it. It's soccer's circle of life, David. Oh. Whoever think there's a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to decide you're going to become a coach at Hanover. Um, also this weekend, uh, we saw Michael Bradley make his oh, debut did we at ever? Toronto. You know, still thought he was playing in the, in the Champions League uh, for Roma. Second Rod coming. Played a huge game of football, just looked amazing. Uh, also, Jermaine Defoe, we have to give a shout-out to him. Fantastic uh, premiere in, uh, in, in, major, in an MLS in Toronto show. I'm excited about Toronto this season, excited to watch them play uh, football. I think Jurgen Klinsmann is trying to find out if Jermaine Defoe is William Defoe. <laughs> well, he has an amazingly American name. He has the most American name of any English player. No doubt. Um, it could, we could Diego Costa him. Yeah. I've got to say, having seen... Watching, He's such a confident finisher watching, as well. Watching Julio Cesar in goal. Yeah. For Toronto, first Brazilian current international to play in MLS. It's like seeing James Franco in General Hospital. <laughs> yeah. Although he couldn't make the QPR team. Um, but uh, still a very, very good keeper, and we'll see him at the World Cup uh, this summer. Reminder, Rog, two weeks left in our big search for a World Cup song for America. Is that what we're calling? Yeah. Our big search for a World Cup song for America? They are flowing in. We've gotten so many Julian Green songs just in the past 24 hours. It's uh, amazing. You can Keep see them our, coming. You can see our Tumblr for more details. Big prizes, including the world's only Men in Blazers customized Xbox One, uh, hand-customized by the geniuses at EA Sports. I, and I, I want to keep that, by the way. Oh, no, I think we're going to have to give it away. And an MIB, uh, or is that an, yeah, an MIB T-shirt made for us by our friend Benjamin Hooper at Bumpy Pitch. Only five of those in the world, Rog. It's beautiful. Okay, your weekend looks like this, Rog. Uh, Chelsea versus Arsenal, Saturday, March 22nd, 8 a.m. Eastern Time on NBC Sports oh. Network. Which Chelsea turns up, Rog? The Chelsea against Villa or the Chelsea against Galatasaray? West Ham United versus Manchester United on Saturday, March 22nd. AKA just a mid-table clash. Nothing to see here. <laughs> At 1 p.m. Eastern Time on NBC Sports Network. In the Spanish Primera Division, uh, Real Madrid 
versus FC Barcelona. My God, it's the good one. Sunday, March 23rd, 3.55pm Eastern Time on BN Sports. Uh, MLS Real Salt Lake versus LA Galaxy, Rog. That would be Kyle Beckerman plus 10. On Saturday, March 22nd, 4pm on NBC Sports Network. There are many ways to connect to us. One is through our Amazon Emporium, which helps keep the show going, keeps Alex Tepper on attractive V-neck jerseys like the one he's wearing today. Anytime you go on Amazon for items big or small, just click uh, on onto Amazon from the Emporium page, and MIB gets a tiny percentage that allows us to cover the cost of creating the show. In its honour, we've birthed a new feature, Emporium Choices of the Week, in which we will both post what we're reading, listening to, or watching. Or shaving with, or whatever you... What have you put into the Emporium this week? Mine. I've been watching Putin. Yeah. I've been watching Crimea, I've been watching Ukraine. I've got to say, it's a little terrifying. Is that a new drama on TV? It's cost that country proper, good and proper. And this yeah. week I picked up Tom Rob Smith's Child 44 trilogy, uh-huh. which I've not read in a while, and I've not been able to put it down. Mm-hmm. It's a series of thrillers that remind you about lives lived in totalitarian societies and the brutal decisions that people have to make to survive within them. Oh, that's a good one. Roger. It's, it's, truly, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful okay, I'm going to pick that one up. Rog, I get very frustrated at things that don't work. Any dads out there, you just know that when you have children and you have to buy car seats and various forms of the plastic paraphernalia that go with children. Nothing is designed properly. Nothing fits together, uh, you know, nicely, squarely. Nice and tight. But the other thing that really frustrates me is several home cleaning things, like vacuum cleaners, yeah. drive me out of my mind, particularly the hand vacs. I'm sure, do you have a hand vac, Rog? Do you sometimes use a hand vac to clear up the, the detritus of your children's breakfast? No, it's why I had children, so oh, that they could do God. it. So they could clean it up. Yeah, a little but hand vacs, they them. work so badly, hand vacs. You turn them on, you charge them, you go to all that trouble, and then you turn it on, and it can't suck up, like, anything. It drives me crazy. My life changed this weekend, Rog, because I bought the Dyson DC-16 Root 8 handheld vacuum cleaner. Um, this is, look at it, doesn't it look like Darth Vader's helmet? It's just a, <laughs> an amazing looking uh, piece of engineering uh, from Dyson. Uh, this thing is so powerful, Rog. Um, it just can pick anything up off the floor. I almost don't need a vacuum cleaner. I can just do my whole place just with my hand vac. It's changed my life. Do you know you're not taping your other pod right now? <laughs> no, I, know, I love t- it. Today in autoerotica. I love the I, Dyson DC-16 Route 6. Sorry, I said Route 8 handheld I vacuum don't, cleaner. I don't host that podcast with you. That, that's the one you do with Tom Brokaw. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, also, Rog, uh, new listeners particularly, please download our Best of Album, which topped the comedy charts on iTunes uh, just before the holidays. Men in Blazers, unbuttoned now. That's what I call suboptimal. Uh, here's a commercial message from our overlords at Grantland. Oh, we already did this at the beginning, but let's do it again. If possible, could you have the guys promote the new podcast channel on YouTube on this week's Men in Blazers? The URL they should mention is youtube.com forward slash, or is that backslash, Grantland Podcasts? I don't know if that's a forward slash or a backslash. I get very confused. Uh, okay, Roger, I think we did that. Uh, as always, you can find us on meninblazers.com. Follow us on Twitter, at Davis at Roger Bennett, at meninblazers is the catch-all. Uh, like us on Facebook. Email us at meninblazers at gmail.com. Keep sending send us your songs, the search for a song for USA 2000. And you can always send anything to us by Raven. Well, not a bottle of pappies. It's a little too heavy for a raven. Uh, send that by mail. But uh, by raven to the crap part of Soho. Men in Blazers, crap part of Soho. They always find us. Okay, Rog. Fenderpunkt. War pig. Boom. Patterns. Feral donkeys. Courage. Size the day. Is that your analysis? Kung fu fight in America. Love you, Rog. Love you, David. You're tight. Thank you for listening to Grantland. 
to hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.